Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, this morning, uh, I want to tell you a little story uh, as we get started. Uh, a few months back, I received a letter in the mail that I was being selected for jury duty. I was really excited about it. Uh, it's uh, always been a dream of mine to take time out of my day and week and serve jury duty. Uh, not, not really. I was actually really uh, annoyed and frustrated. And so I filled out the survey and thought, okay, well, maybe they won't select me. They did. Uh, and so I showed up for the trial, and the first day I sat there and I thought, well, there's a lot of people here. They might not get to me. Uh, juror number one, Josh Hollowell. So I sat in juror number one spot, and I thought, well, okay, we got to get through the process of, you know, selecting the jurors. Well, really all it takes to be a juror is somebody who is uh, truthful, honest, and uh, impartial, which uh, c coincidentally are also things that are somewhat required for my job as a pastor. And so I was like, there's no way I can get out of this. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, I mean, people were like lying to get out of stuff, and it was like, I'm, I think I'm stuck. And so I was stuck in a trial, and uh, the trial went on three days and actually ended before we had to deliberate. It, um, the defendant took a plea bargain before we had to deliberate, but we spent three days in trial. And um, it was the first time I had stepped into that experience, uh, and it taught me quite a bit. Um, the case was actually a child molestation case. It was not a fun topic. It was a very heavy week of hearing testimony and uh, seeing evidence and all of these things piling up. And I, throughout the trial, I continued to just watch people, my fellow jury members, the prosecutor, the defendant, uh, the defense attorney, and just watch their facial expressions as things happened. But I focused a lot on watching the defendant. As evidence came forward, watching his facial exp uh, expressions and watching him interact with these things. And later, he did take a guilty plea bargain. And so a lot of things started to make sense of the way in which he squirmed under the evidence being brought forward. And I imagined myself in that position, not for the same crime, but imagined myself, what would I do if I was in, on trial and I knew I was guilty? And there was nothing I could do. There was no evidence I could bring forward to prove my innocence. And I just had to sit there and listen to evidence be brought forward against me. And I knew there was no way out. There was no forgiveness. I was guilty. And I wasn't going to get out of it. Well, today we're going to look at actually quite a similar scene to the one I described uh, from the Old Testament. And in this scene, we're going to learn about how forgiveness can be granted. First, we're going to learn about why we need forgiveness, then how we get forgiveness, and then what we do with forgiveness. Now, forgiveness, when we talk about forgiveness, I think often of, of my uh, childhood. I grew up in the church, but I had some very strange views of God's forgiveness of me. I grew up thinking that after I sinned, what I needed to do was take the first step towards God. It was always on me to initiate getting forgiveness. And I had to take the first step towards God to get forgiveness. And when I would get forgiveness, what really happened is I would get a clean slate to start again. 
Now, this clean slate to start again didn't mean everything else was forgotten because what I thought would ultimately happen is that there were some sort of divine scales that as long as I had more good than bad, I would be okay. So I had to rack up lots of good because I actually knew there was a lot of bad. Most folks didn't see the bad. I looked pretty good on the outside, but no one really knew the inner turmoil, the addiction to pornography that was going on in my life, and all the other guilt and shame I felt. So I knew my bad scales were pretty bad. So I just worked furiously to get more good on my good scales because I thought that's how God's forgiveness worked. And because of that, the final... uh, state for me, if God were to actually forgive me, is that he would just tolerate me. He would tolerate my presence, but there was no delight. There was no friendship. There was no relationship. He would tolerate my presence as long as I got more good than bad. Well, what about you? How do you think God forgives? What do you think about God's forgiveness? Not the right answer that you may know, But when you feel as though you're the defendant in a trial and you know you're guilty, how do you think the judge of the universe will forgive you? What do you think about forgiveness? Well, today we're going to look at a prophetic narrative, a a narrative section of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah was a prophet to God's people when they came back from exile in Babylon. Now, God's people had been redeemed out of Egypt, the Israelites, and God had given them a land. He had promised this land to them. But when they, he sent them into the land, and continuously while they were in the land, he warned them, saying, if you break covenant with me, if you continue to disobey over and over and over again, worshiping other gods and not doing what I've commanded you, I will drive you out of this land. And the people of Israel ignore his warnings and continue to disobey. They break covenant with God over and over again. And they are driven from the land and they are in exile in Babylon. And in God's mercy, he brings them back to the land. And that story is uh, recounted for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Fascinating stories of God bringing his people back to the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But the people experience a lot of doubt about God's forgiveness. They had messed up big time. They had been exiled for a long time. And now they're not sure. Does God still love us as his people? And so God sends Zechariah to encourage the people. To encourage them of God's love. And he does this in a series of ways, but this morning we're going to focus on Zechariah chapter 3, which is a vision that Zechariah has about the high priest. So if you have a Bible, you can pull out, uh, flip to Zechariah 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these white Bibles in the seats in front of you, and you can flip to page 462, uh, and that has Zechariah 3 on it. So if you want to find that. Now, typically, we ask everyone to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm not going to do that this morning because I'm actually going to walk through this passage in small chunks. So we're going to read a little section, talk about it, and read a little section and talk about it. So I'm going to pray for our time, and then we're going to jump into the word. Father God, thank you for your presence with us. 
through your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you speak to us through these ancient words that you have uh, written through the power of your Holy Spirit for us today. That you have things to say to us today. And Lord, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit and transform us as a people. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 1 of Zechariah 3. Then, the, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Okay, let's stop there. I know we only got three verses in, but we're going to unpack a little bit here and then we're going to move on. Um, and we're going to sh- look here specifically, oh, I had it up here, sorry, <laughs> uh, at why we need forgiveness. Why do we need forgiveness? And to do that, I want to look at the characters in this scene for us. So we have three characters. We have the angel of the Lord, Joshua the high priest, and Satan. We'll get more into the angel of the Lord. We're going to get more info about him as we move on. But Joshua here is the high priest at this time as the people have returned from exile. So he is the one who will intercede for the people before God and represent the people in front of God in the sacrifices. This is the key way in which God will mediate his forgiveness and his law to his people through the high priest. So Joshua is very important for Israel. But who is Satan? Some of your translations may actually call him the accuser in this passage. And despite what popular culture might say about Satan uh, and, and what the Bible tells us about it, we actually don't have a lot of information in the scriptures about Satan. We only have a very limited information about him. But here's what we do know. Satan and God are not in some dualistic battle of good and evil with equal strength. And we actually see that in this passage. Satan has zero power to condemn. You see it in this scene. Joshua is not standing before Satan. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is the prosecuting attorney in this courtroom scene. He is accusing Joshua of his guilt. He does not have the final say. God does. Now, that should not immediately comfort us, though, friends. Our God is a consuming fire. His holiness is awesome. His justice is pure and righteous. And his wrath against sin is terrifying. And remember, Joshua and Israel are guilty. There's no way they can argue that they're not guilty. They spent 70 years in exile for failing to keep the covenant. They had blown it. And so in our scene, Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, filthy. The high priest, the one who is to represent the people before God, is dirty. He's unworthy. He's guilty. He's shameful. Friends, have you ever felt like you're standing before the Lord guilty and stained 
wearing dirty clothes before the Lord with Satan accusing you. Throwing before the Lord and in front of you all of the things you've ever done wrong. Shame for the things you've done wrong. Maybe you grew up in the church, but now you're not so sure what you believe about God. Or maybe you've never really understood or worshipped God. You're not sure what you believe about God. And you find yourself here this morning feeling guilty before the Lord. Or maybe the shame that you feel that the Lord continually brings before you is your sexual sin. The shame that you feel for same-sex attraction, pornography, one-night stands, inappropriate relationships. Or maybe you have a criminal history. You have actual crimes that you've committed before the state and before our country, and you have a criminal history, and so you're very keenly aware of what it means to stand before a judge guilty and have those things brought before you. Or maybe the shame that you feel is over drug use or alcohol use or gossip that you can't stop but you keep talking about people behind their back and destroying lives or lying or theft or cheating on your taxes. No one knows, but you know. Or cheating out your employees. Or greed. Or racism. Feeling shame for these things. Or feeling shame for all the other things. That's just the things that I've done. What about the things that I haven't done? Like reading my Bible all the time. Sharing my faith with others. Loving my neighbor. That neighbor that's always struggling that I continually judge and don't help. If we're honest with ourselves, we have shame and guilt and we stand before the Lord dirty. Right, but this is just a vision that Zechariah is seeing, right? Well, see, the Bible actually shares with us another vision in the book of Revelation with a very similar scene. Revelation 20, 11 through 13 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. You see, friends, we will all stand, just like Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord, filthy and guilty. We will all stand one day before the Lord. And what will you say on that day? When the books are opened and everything that you've done or not done is read before the Lord, what will you say? What will be your defense before the king of the universe? The one that you have disobeyed with your thoughts and your words and your deeds. 
Friends, this passage highlights we need forgiveness because there's nothing we can say on that day. But thankfully, the Lord goes on to show how we can get forgiveness. How we can get forgiveness. Picking up in verse 4. And the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments or pure robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on the single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, there is a lot of prophetic language in here that we're going to unpack. But here is the sweet word from the Lord. He says to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your sins, your iniquity, your guilt. I have taken it away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure robes. You are guilty and stained, but I will remove your guilty and stained clothes and give you clean, fresh clothes. I have taken your iniquity away. The Lord is forgiving his sins. Now, how does he do that? How does this happen? Because actually, there's some unique things going on here. We get a few clues in this text. But one of the unique things that's going on here is, do you see who's speaking here? Who's speaking to Joshua? In verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing there, the angel of the Lord has, for, has authority to forgive sins? I thought God alone has authority to forgive sins. Jesus himself says that. Only God can forgive sins. And yet this angel of the Lord who speaks on behalf of God forgives. Friends, the angel of the Lord here is divine. And yet distinct from God the Father. Divine and yet distinct from God the Father. The second clue that we get in this text of how the angel of the Lord can do this is there are two words that are used here. The, the word servant, uh, both of these, I believe, come in verse, in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, it says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Those are two words that should set off light bulbs. Where, what is he talking about? Where, where, do, where do we get this idea of servant and branch? What, what, what is exactly he's saying here? Well, in Isaiah 42, God says this through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Jeremiah 23, 5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The Lord will appoint a servant and a branch who will reign and bring justice, who will judge, meaning they have the ability and the authority to declare forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is the promised coming Messiah, the one who will restore God's people. And what will he do? Well, in verse 9 he says, when the branch comes, I will remove the iniquity, the sins of this land in a single day. So the Lord is able to forgive Joshua, the high priest, because of a future coming one who is the branch, the son of David, and the servant of the Lord. And this person will forgive iniquity, just like the divine angel of the Lord. Friends, all of this is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the son of David, the servant of the Lord, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, who is fully divine and yet distinct from God the Father, the one by whom the Lord has spoken. And how will this Jesus give forgiveness? Well, earlier, our confession, we read from Romans chapter 3. And if we go on in Romans chapter 3, this is what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a wrath-satisfying sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This verse is so incredibly powerful. We don't have a lot of time to unpack all of the things about this verse, but we can summarize it by looking to another place in Scripture too. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What these two passages are saying is this is how God's forgiveness works. How God's forgiveness works is that Jesus takes the place of Joshua the high priest. When he says, take, remove the filthy garments from him, what Jesus does is puts on those filthy garments. He puts on all of your sin and my sin and all the sins of all who will trust in Jesus. He puts them on himself and bears the punishment that God requires for sin, which is death. Jesus bears all of the death that our sins have deserved, taking all of the shame, all of the punishment, and all of the guilt. Also, he can put on his righteous robes on those who trust in Jesus. 
It's as if, right, the angel of the Lord were to step down, Jesus himself were to step down, remove the filthy garments from Joshua, set them down, take off his robe, put it on Joshua, and then put back on those filthy clothes and bear those sins on, with his body by his death on the cross so that you now stand if you're trusting in Jesus, looking to him by faith alone, you now stand righteous. Clothed with the very righteousness of God, the very perfection of God, the obedience of Jesus to every demand of the law. Not just not doing sin, but also doing the right thing every time. Loving God the Father perfectly and loving neighbor Perfectly. That's now yours if you're trusting in Jesus. This is incredible forgiveness. This is how forgiveness is accomplished. Now, what do we do with that forgiveness? I want to spend the rest of our time here today applying this passage to two groups of people. First, what does this mean if you are not in Christ. And then second, what does this mean if you are in Christ? Friends, if you are not in Christ, if you're not wearing those righteous robes of Jesus, when you stand before the Lord, who will be your advocate? Because those books will be opened and who will stand up to defend you? That's the question you must wrestle with today. And friends, if you need an advocate, Jesus wants to be your advocate. He's done everything necessary. Repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus, and he will give you his righteous robes for you to cover your sin. Well, what does this mean, then, if you are in Christ? If you are trusting in Jesus? Friends, first it means that you have an advocate. On that day when those books will be opened, another will step forward, Jesus himself, and say, those have been taken away. This, my servant, is clothed in my righteousness. And Jesus' book will be opened. And your name will be written there for entrance into God's kingdom. It means that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you. 1 John chapter 1, 9 through uh, chapter 2, 1 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? That language of forgive and cleanse, it's exactly what happens with Joshua the high priest. His filthy robes are taken off. They are cleansed and he's given righteous robes. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Those are good words for sinners who know their guilt. We have an advocate with the Father. That means that all of the wrath of God against your sin has been spent upon Jesus it also means that we get the blessings of his forgiveness. 
This passage has some great prophetic language about the blessings of God's forgiveness to us. We get shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace or wholeness, right? It goes on to talk about this language, right? In that day, chapter, uh, verse 10, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is language of blessing, community with no sin, inviting people together and experiencing wholeness together. This is also another blessing that we get, which is evangelism. We don't typically think about evangelism as a blessing, but immediately he says, in that day, you will invite your neighbor to be a part of this. You will invite your neighbor into this. Friends, this is exactly why we're planting a church. This is exactly what we're trying to do is to invite our neighbors into this blessing of forgiveness because they desperately need forgiveness. And we want to invite them into the joy of what it means to be forgiven in the highest court. This is why we're planting a church is to offer this kind of forgiveness to our city. Friends, this is what you get to do. If evangelism If you see evangelism sharing the blessing of forgiveness with others as a burden and not a joy, maybe you don't get how great it is to be forgiven. This is amazing. And we are really good at inviting our neighbors into amazing things. If I get something new, I tell all of my neighbors about it all the time. You all know this because I tell you about everything new. And I'm so excited about it. Because it's wonderful, and I want you to experience that joy. Friends, if you're not sharing your faith with others, it may be because you've lost the joy of your salvation. You need to meditate on what you've been forgiven from and the joy of what it means to know God as Father and as friend. This is the blessing of forgiveness, and now we get to invite others into that blessing. But the best part, it's not the best part, the best part comes in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall have rule my house and have charge in my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You get to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm giving you access into the inner circle. This is the essence of the gospel. We get God himself. Access to God himself. This relationship with God is created by his covenant with us. And in this covenant relationship, God grants us forgiveness and also requires from us obedience. I don't know if you notice that in this passage. It says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, wait a second. Does this mean this forgiveness is conditional upon my obedience? This is not good because I think we keep messing this up, right? Well, the forgiveness is not conditional upon our obedience, but the forgiveness empowers our obedience. Right? The angel of the Lord isn't, warning or condemning Joshua, right? He says in verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. This is meant to encourage him. 
Walk in my ways. And this is no different than the New Testament, right? Our assurance of pardon this morning was Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, right? Clean robes. And above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? This is the same thing. If indeed you walk in my ways, this will be true of you. Well, how are we to understand that? How are we to understand? There seems to be a tension here. And how are we to resolve that tension and understand this? Friends, you will persevere if God has given you these new robes of righteousness. You have new clothes on. And these passages are meant to call us to walk in those new clothes. Do not go back and put on those dirty robes of sin again. Walk in your fresh, clean, pure clothes of Jesus' righteousness and obedience. That's now who you are. That's who you are. And you will definitely persevere if God has granted you forgiveness. So go do it. Right? It's this incredible encouragement. You will do it. Now go do it. Imagine how much easier it is to accomplish something that you know will happen. You've now been assured from the Lord that this will happen. If you're trusting in Jesus, now go walk it out. Live it out. But friends, if you're not continuing in the faith right now, if you're stubborn and refusing to repent of your sin and seek God's forgiveness, if you're stubbornly avoiding the Lord, be warned, as the scriptures would warn you. Have you really been forgiven? Were you really given Christ's righteousness? If so, it really will change you. Now, don't get me wrong. Grace comes first, but obedience follows grace, or grace really hasn't affected you. Because obedience must follow grace. Because you've been transformed and you now wear new robes of righteousness. Remember the book of life passage that we talked about from Revelation? Well, here's another uh, passage in Revelation that talks about this. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is a glorious promise. If we, to the one who conquers, right? To the one who perseveres to the end, right? Pastor Bob preached on this just in the Q&A sermon series. So if you have more questions about this, you can uh, refer back to that sermon about what it means to have eternal security. And yet, also, there's these warning passages for us that we must persevere, right? So we must lean into the righteousness that God has granted us, the forgiveness that God has granted us to persevere to the end. Because God has promised that all who are trusting in Jesus by faith alone will make it to the end. I will never blot their name out of the book of life. But what if, so I'm in Christ, I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm forgiven, I'm persevering, 
but I really struggle with being nagged by my guilt and my shame. Satan seems to continue to accuse me. I feel so often that I am in the place where Joshua the high priest is. And Satan just continues to throw my sin and all of my past before me. And I feel unworthy before the Lord. What should I do then when I don't feel forgiven and I continue to struggle in sin and I feel that Satan continues to accuse me? Friends, if that's you, you find yourself in good company with all of God's people. It's the common Christian experience to struggle with our past and to doubt our forgiveness. But what should we do with such doubts? Well, I want to close with what we should do with such doubts with a quote from Martin Luther. The great reformer who struggled intensely with such doubts. He says this, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Let's pray.